Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called through the light of faith and the Catholic intellectual tradition to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and the life of human flourishing. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, my guest today is uh, Professor Stuart Squires, who's the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture here at the University of St. Thomas and Associate Professor. Um, you did your studies at, at Catholic University of America, and then your scholarship since then has been on, on the Pelagian controversy. Um, and we spoke a bit about that in our last conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you've got, you've got a work coming out uh, with Oxford University Press on some biographies of the main players, and then there's a conference in in Barcelona, um, and we talked a bit about um, kind of uh, also Tertullian and um, his view of of classical philosophy, Greek philosophy as as a source of heresy. Um, Want to contrast it this time with some of some of the uh, some other authors, particularly Saint Basil the Great, mm-hmm. um, and you know the theme for these podcasts really um, is liberal learning, liberal education, um, and then sources, principles, goals, and then how we live that out here at the University of St. Thomas and how our listeners might take what, what we're discussing here and apply it to their own context, either personal context of living you know, free lives as liberally educated persons, but for many people who are teachers or administrators, perhaps things we talk about in these conversations can help them in those roles as well. Um, Having dealt with Tertullian last time, who, who takes a rather dim view, I must say, right. yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> of it's many true. of these sources, um, could you say a bit about St. Basil and how he reorients the conversation? Yeah. So thank you for having me back. So just really quickly, uh, um, as a reminder, the question we're asking is how much can and should uh, the people of God engage with those things, culture, literature, music, etc., from outside of uh, the 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 Christian world. Basil, as you say, offers a, a, a different view from Tertullian. Um, in his text, uh, he, he lived in the fourth century. He was one of the Cappadocian fathers. And he has a wonderful text called The Address to Young Men on the Reading of Greek Literature. And by Greek, he means pagan, right? Um, so the question that, that Tertullian was also sort of uh, wrestling with is how much should we engage with that? And, and Basil has a more positive view. And he says that, well, we can and should engage with pagan literature, um, not wholeheartedly. We shouldn't take it on wholesale, I should say. Um, We should take on a read, engage with um, the the pagan literature that, and he just gives us some guiding principles. So anything that, that, that is truthful, anything that leads to virtue, anything that's useful, he doesn't really go again in in my personal opinion as in, in as deep uh, as much detail as I would have liked um but he points to a variety of different groups that he says uh that we we can turn towards and sometimes draw on them and sometimes not. So um, he talks, and I want to get to this later and hear your opinion on musicians. What does he say <laughs> about music? But the four groups that he focuses on are the poets. And by poets, he means um, epic poets. He talks a lot about Homer, the historians, the philosophers, and the rhetoricians. Of course, in in uh, antiquity, uh, the highest form of education was not, you know, getting an MBA and making a lot of money, but was the ability to speak well, 
eloquently, extemporaneously in, in the public sphere, convincingly, persuasively, right? Um, so he says, again, read, read, read Homer but, uh, and other poets, but only do so for what is good in them. And he, and he goes through and he gives a lot of examples. So one example he talks about Odysseus, you know, when he, he passes the sirens that, uh, that he, he turns away, right? He doesn't look at the sirens um, so that he's not seduced by them, right? And so when we read, um, you know, Homer, we should read and engage with that which is virtuous. Um, but he says, you know, ignore the poets when they talk about uh, fornication or alcohol, or most importantly, uh, engaging with other gods, right? Because they were polytheists and Christians are, are monotheists. Um, historians, he, he, he references Alexander the Great, and he says, when Alexander conquered Darius, who had several beautiful daughters, uh, he said that he, Alexander wouldn't even look at um, uh, these women because it was not fitting for a conqueror of men to be a slave to women, right? Uh, and then he says, so, so, so when there are examples in history, draw on that, but don't draw on historians when they uh, make up stories, right? Um, when, uh, that's, that's bad uh, history. So, so don't draw on that. The philosophers, and this, this is the one that always caught my attention. He says, draw on Greek philosophy, which we saw Tertullian does not say. Um, uh, and an example, when it's good, uh, an example he gives is Plato. He talks a lot about Plato and he says, um, pay only so much heed to the body as, as is an aid to wisdom. And then he immediately quotes St. Paul, let no one make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Um, so in Basil's mind, he's saying, look, Plato and Paul are saying the same thing about the body. But I don't think that's entirely true. As you know, the Platonists said that the body is a prison for the soul and that the life of the philosopher is to release the soul from that prison. Whereas Christians you know, because God created all things, including the material world, because the Logos was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection, um, the, the material world, the body is, is fundamentally good. So I think philosophically, there's, there's a difference between the way Platonists and Christians think about the body. And I don't think Basil's, and Basil knows this, right? He's smarter than I am. Um, so I think he's being a little disingenuous here, right? He's saying, oh yeah, yeah, read Plato and he likes the body. Well, that's not, not true. Uh, and then finally, he talks about the rhetoricians, right? When, when, when the rhetoricians, the orators praise virtue and condemn vice, that's a good thing. Um, but of course, uh, ignore them uh, because rhetoric can be the art of lying. Um, in Augustine's Confessions, he called himself uh, his younger years when he was in, in rhetor into rhetoric, you know, that he was a salesman of words. Um, so, so be careful of those rhetoricians uh, and the art of lying, which I think is applicable today, of course. Yeah, this, this is, in fact, I think, I think we, uh, we, we entitled one of Tom Harmon's podcasts, the, um, lying for money, or there was some sort of it involved right. lying and, uh, rhetoric. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. Well, and I, 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 you've taught this work before. Um, what struck me is, is the ways in which he not only praises, uh, pagan learning directly, but he also uses it. Yeah. Um, and he weaves it in and he weaves in these images. So, um, you know, he, you know, he praises, um, you know, this is this is relatively early on, 
Um, he talks about perceiving the truth as in, you know, um, as it were in shadows and in mirrors mm-hmm. as we prepare to, to see it directly. And then ultimately we accustom ourselves to the sun's reflection in the water and then can turn our eyes to the sun itself, which any reader of, of the allegory of the cave is going to be, be reminded of. Um, and then, you know, he, he also, um, you know, he goes through and, and discusses it, toward the end, he talks about the, the different things that we might choose or his hearers or his readers might choose besides education, right? And he goes through the classic list that Aristotle treats, right? Which is, you know, honor, money, pleasure, and, um, and says, no, it's, there's this higher life and he's calling mm-hmm. it to. So, so it's not just a direct um, praise of liberal learning, but it, it, it kind of gives structure to, mm-hmm. you know, his own, his own work here. Um, I, and then, and then also the, I guess the ordering of the soul, the yeah. soul in relation to the body and in relation to the passions, um, and so this is just shot through its, itself. Yeah, he, he uses also the image, uh, which I think is a bit more biblical, milk and meat, right? Mm-hmm. That the, these, these pagan authors can and should be used as milk, right? As a preparation for, uh, for the meat of scripture, um, that you can't understand scripture well unless you have that preparation. And I think specifically he would talk about the virtues, right? So, uh, um, and, you, and you see this, of course, later on in the medieval universities, right? The idea of, uh, um, you don't just start with a first grader giving them philosophy. You know, you don't give a third grader Thomas Aquinas. Um, th- there has to be that preparation. So what is the preparation? The, prep- the milk, that's, the, that's these pagan authors. Um, I, I, I want to talk now, uh, if we can, about the music, right? I want to hear no, your sure. opinion, George. So <laughs> this is page 116. So he says, to speak gen- generally... And so far as your needs demand, purity of the soul embraces these things, to scorn sensual pleasures, to refuse to feast the eyes on the senseless antics of buffoons, or on the bodies which goad one to passion, and to close one's ears to songs which corrupt the mind. And then he goes on for a couple more lines to talk about this, that we must employ that class of music which is better in itself and which leads to better things. How do you read that, George? Yeah, so, uh, so I, th- I feel like I'm just was t- the table was just turned. Um, yes, absolutely. So, um, uh, <laughs> I was interviewing home here. Um, we've already done this once before, haven't we? Um, so I'm just I will just say I'm happy to say that he he brought up music before he brought up perfumes, which ah, is what yes. follows. So I'm happy <laughs> to know that music made it into the register prior to attending uh, to what we smell, right? Um, and uh, smell and and, uh, and cover our bodies with. So um, he mentions uh, he mentions David and Pythagoras among others. And these are the classic um, uh, embodiments and of music. And they represent, well, first of all, we should say that music would have meant much more than it means to us, which is a kind of music we tend to think of rather narrowly as sound. It's a particular kind of sound. It may have words, it may not. Um, but for him uh, and, and from the Greek tradition, music means poetry mm-hmm. um, because of its rhythmic dimension, its metrical qualities. Um, there's a, as a kind of music, but also dance. So music was a very, is a much broader thing. So the, the look, it really is the ears, but there's a, there's a much broader understanding. Um, and there is a, a sense from this and the tradition he's drawing from that music um, has a formative influence right. um, in the way that, the way that pagan literature would form, uh, thinking of imaginative literature, poetry broadly defined, would form the imagination and provide a seedbed for um, the Christian story. Um, and in the way that uh, pagan philosophy would give us the categories and the skills dialectically and in terms of metaphysics and other ways that would allow us to, to craft a, a metaphysics in which the, the Christian tradition could live and breathe, but also an ethical tradition. 
in the same way music forms and in a sense can inform and tune the soul. Mm -hmm. um, and, and here we, we tap into the idea of a, a microcosm and macrocosm, the idea that, 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 that man is a, is a kind of mini cosmos. Um, and just as there's an ordering and a harmony of the, of the spheres and, and between the seasons, um, there is an ordering uh, that, that the soul should, be, should undergo. Um, and this can happen through the years, um, and but also through the eyes, because m sounding music was only one kind of music for many of these people, um, drawing on Boethius and Pythagoras and others. There was also a kind of a music that was accessible to the mind, right? A musica speculativa, a music a music to be contemplated. But sounding music was an important category, and it it represented these other categories in important ways. But David and, and Pythagoras, why these two? Well, most th those who've read um, the Old Testament scriptures know about um, David uh, playing music to, to calm the mind and the heart and the soul of Saul, right? So there was a, a, there was a way in which the inner turmoil, the inner discord um, within Saul could be brought into tune mm -hmm. through the external sounds that David would play. Um, the, the external sounding harmony could bring about a kind of immaterial harmony within the heart and mind of the hearers. Um, so this is really important. And if, that, if this is in fact the case, then what we listen to affects us. What we listen to affects our moods. Yeah. It's going to affect how we see the world. It's going to affect us at every dimension. Now, um, I'm sure no, no one who's listening to this has ever thought that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, actually, we probably do. Yeah. We're probably sensitive to the fact that certain music will affect our moods. And, and sometimes we choose music that will kind of affirm how we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll choose music to kind of change how we're feeling, but we're aware that there's a connection there. Um, and, and I think the story of David um, does that. And so a thoughtful person who's concerned about self-formation, participating with a teacher, cooperating mm -hmm. with a teacher um, and with authors to become wise is going to attend to music. Is going to attend and be aware that, that music just as the books we read, uh, the thoughts we think, the, the, the images we entertain, mm -hmm. the music we bring into our souls are going, is going to, going to affect us and shape us. And if we do it long enough, it builds up a habitus mm -hmm. and it, it creates a, a quasi-permanent structure within who we are because we're attuned to, in that way. The example of Pythagoras is, um, is, is really interesting and, and it runs parallel to David and, and there are different versions of this. But, but um, Basil mentions one version um, another version um, uh, that, that he, I'm sure he knew is that you have this drunken, you know, um, raving young person who is threatening a young woman. I think she's in the house. He's threatening to burn the house down around her. Um, maybe they were engaged. Maybe she's, he was just jilted, but he's, he's probably intoxicated. Um, he's certainly out of his mind. Pythagoras recognizes this um, and I guess requires or, or asks some nearby musicians to play certain kind of music in the Dorian mode, a certain kind of music in a certain mode, which and th those modes were not only pitches, but had other associations with them. Mm -hmm. um, the Dorian mode was the, the mode of Apollo, for example, the God of restraint and light in many contexts. And the young man, upon hearing that music calmed mm -hmm. and came back to his senses. Um, another story about Pythagoras is that he discovers that underneath these relation, these musical relationships um, one finds mathematical numbers right. and these harmonies. And so there's a mathematical basis. And if we go back to the book of wisdom, we know that God created cosmos in weight and number, mm -hmm. right? So essentially what you're doing is through music, you're tuning your soul mm -hmm. to the larger created cosmos.
So let's get concrete, George. So if, <laughs> if, if music is more than just sound, then that includes visuals. So should we be listening to Elvis and watching his gyrating hips on YouTube? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm breaking, the connection here is breaking up. I don't, I don't know. That we, um, you know, no, well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think one, I think what it does call us to is a, is a kind of, um, uh, moving from a just a mindless consumption of yeah. music and culture to to a, a reflective one, mm -hmm. um, and um, I think their arguments uh, against Elvis can be made from a, a whole variety of places, and sure. it doesn't it doesn't need to come from me. But um, <laughs> um, uh, but I but I I do think even within the realm of of what we might call high art, you know, uh, um, you know, if you look at the 19th century, you've got Brahms who's more Apollonian, and you've got Wagner who's more Dionysian. Mm. Right? Nietzsche was ha was in, was onto something there, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, so the classical style versus the Baroque style, even though it came before, had a very much, it was about exciting the emotions, right. um, obviously for religious purposes. So I find that when I'm teaching undergraduates about this, the big question is just moving from a state of mindless consumption yeah. to an awareness. So I, was that, did I, did I answer your question? No, you, no. you avoided it, but that's all right. I, I won't, I won't, I won't <laughs> come, back, come to, back to it. No, uh, I'll let that slide. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, how do um, I mean? How do you see this? Having taught undergraduates, do you see do you see yeah. students being intentional in this regard, or is it kind of a mindless mindless consumption? Mm. Or young no, people I in think, general? I, I I don't know if yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not a young person, so I, I don't want to speak for them. I think I think they're more conscious about things like TikTok, right? We just this past okay. week had that sort of Facebook whistleblower woman talking about the things that Instagram does, especially to young women. I think they're very attuned to those questions. Whether they think that much about music, okay, uh, I, I think that might be secondary or tertiary, more towards the social media question. Yeah. Okay. So, but they are thinking about culture more broadly sometimes when, um, or they, they can be, if, if, a, if a whistleblower comes out. I hope so. And, yeah. But certainly by the end of my classes, I hope they are. Yeah. 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 Well, this is interesting. Well, we've talked, so we talked in a previous conversation a bit about what Tertullian's reading list might look like. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe we could, um, and we can ask what kind of music would be on Basil's list if you'd yeah. like. Um, but um, I wonder if, I mean, I can imagine Basil's list looking a lot more like um, a Catholic great books list, right? It includes a lot of Christian authors, but also pagan authors as well. Um, would you qualify that or, or hone that a bit? Yeah, I think I'd agree. And in, and I'm certainly in Basil's camp. I'm not in Tertullian's camp. But I also think that if we were to sit down and talk specifics, you know, put him in a time machine or put me in a time machine and get into the gritty, nitty gritty details, personally, my list would probably be narrower than hers. His, I think he has a very expansive list. I'd also be curious to know, you know, okay, you're talking about sort of Greek pagan stuff. Well, if you come to the 21st century, how much of sort of postmodern culture, Basil, would you be in? interested right. in engaging and does the same sort of principles apply do we see virtue do we see truth i mean he says engage anything uh, in the philosophers uh that leads to truth well our postmodern world says there is no truth so um would he change his mind if he were in the 21st century i don't you know it's just a fun game to play while you're drinking a bottle of wine we don't have an answer to that um so I think, but I think his answer might be different now than it would be in the fourth century. But, but to your point, I think you're right. In general, he would have a great books uh, uh, vision, certainly reading Plato. Um, um, so it's not so much, you know, again, which authors to read, but how we read them, how we engage with them. Uh, so I think he would have a very expansive list.
Yeah, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made that last comment because that ties into the question of pedagogy and, and ends. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I had an extraordinary experience in St. John's College in Annapolis. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful. I was a, a graduate a graduate degree there. Um, I discovered St. John's after I was almost finished with my undergraduate, so I, yeah. I couldn't make that choice. But um, just to have had two years carved out to, to read these, these great books closely um, um, is a gift that I'll always be grateful for. Um, I wasn't Catholic at the time, mm -hmm. and I found the books to be very life-giving, um, yeah. and, and they, they really opened up a vision of reality in which there was a pre-modern vision of reality. Um, yeah. um, there was a kind of ancient classical and, and medieval vision. Um, as after I became Catholic and I discovered Catholic approaches to the great books, um, I began to, to be more sensitive to some of the deficiencies in my own education. One of the things that, that came out is that, you know, at St. John's, there's no real way to adjudicate between authors, mm. right? There's no real way to adjudicate between the Richardsonian vision of the human person and the Hobbesian view, right? It's just one author after the other. And yeah. so you end up at the end with Nietzsche at the end of your four years and you're, um, and Ulysses and, and Joyce and, you, and you're sort of like, well, I've read it all. I've seen yeah. it all. Um, I'm really, and there's really nothing new under the sun. And you're kind of where the author of Ecclesiastes is, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, nothing's going to surprise me. There are no ideas I can be in, 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 you know, I can encounter this really good. And, it, and to be at that point when you're 21 or 22, yeah. that's a kind of a scary place to be. So there's that. There's, there's, there's no place from which to stand to make a judgment about, about those, those questions. But then the second thing about St. John's is there's, um, I'm told that at one point there was a kind of battle and in, in, in somewhere um, in the, the 20th century at St. John's about whether they're trying to educate the whole person or not. Mm. Are they forming the whole person? Or are we trying to get the students to, to live more virtuous lives? Yeah. Or are we just reading the books and trying to understand them? And the, yeah. the party that favored the latter, we're just trying to read the books and understand them, they won. Mm. Right. And so they gave up on trying to form the whole person. My guess is that Basil would say, no, there is a way to adjudicate between truth and falsity, right. um, and that we're also trying to aim for an education of the whole person. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think that he might actually agree with Tertullian on this, getting back okay. to our previous episode, right? The, 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 the role that the rule of faith has in setting those boundaries for adjudicating texts. Um, my friend Jared Ortiz that I mentioned on my previous, the previous episode, who is also deeply involved in this, he said, if you go to St. John's College, you either convert to Catholicism as a sophomore or become an atheist nihilist as a senior, um, which I think he's only sort of half joking about. Um, it's pretty accurate. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I agree with that critique. Uh, I have never... Uh, this is one of my biggest regrets of life. I didn't even know what a great books program was till I was in my 20s because I'm a child of the public school system, but we won't go down that conversation. <laughs> um, but I also think there's a, you know, as an, as an historical theologian, there's a serious problem of history, right? That these right. ideas in these books that are being read right. in these programs, they're not in vacuums. They're, they're right. not just these Gnostic ideas battling themselves out in some Platonic, you know, reality. They're grounded in historical moments. There are personalities that these people have who write these, and um, there needs to be a strong dose of liturgy, which we talked about last time. There needs to be a strong dose of history, I would argue. And then to your point, there needs to be uh, a, a guide as to how to um, uh, adjudicate truth, which is what I think there are other you know, Catholic great books colleges around the country. Uh, and I think that they... Uh, might be reading the same text that St. John's does, which is, even though it sounds religious because it's called St. John's, it's not a religious institution. Um, there's going to be a fundamental difference 
in those two different types of schools, even if they're reading the exact same texts. Yeah, well, you've, you've set this up. I have to mention, so my previous institution at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, that was one of our big projects over the last 10 years was how to ground a great books approach historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was a big challenge and, but it can be done. Did you resolve it? Did I, you figure I think, it out? I think we, well, I think we did. And okay. I think, I think it, it requires care and nuance, but it is possible to, to, if you think of, if you think polyphonically, mm-hmm. right, if you think of there's a main line, right. um, which are the primary sources you're reading, but there are supporting voices to mm-hmm. use the metaphor of music. It is possible. And it also involves just having the right professors, having the right tutors and teachers. Yeah. It can be done. Um, I think when the Great Books Colleges were, were started, the Great Books programs, secondary education was much stronger. Right. So people coming into those programs, it was assumed that they had had a good high school grounding in history. Right. And then it was simply a matter of integrating those ideas that you get from the books into the historical context that you acquired. But now when students are arriving at great books colleges, there's a lot of desire there, but they may or may not have a good sense of history. Yeah. And so it's not really- and, um, and if they came from my public education background, they probably don't have a good sense of history, yeah. which uh, I didn't get interested in history until my 20s. And I think the main reason, well, two main reasons, it's just taught terribly. It's taught from horribly written textbooks, right? right. They don't read the primary sources. And the- History is understood simply as kings, queens, and generals, military battles and political events. There's so much more to history, right? Right. As someone who's in the history of ideas, specifically theology, that's so much more exciting than, you know, this battle, you know, I, I love reading about or, or watching the uh, Ken Burns documentaries on the Civil War, but I always tune right. out when they talk about the actual battles, right? <laughs> I tune in when they talk about what is the food that the, the Confederate That's soldiers ate, right? Hard yeah. tack. And, and how did they make their own, you know, beer or vodka, you know, right. um, fermented beverages when they're out in the middle of nowhere, right? So right. that's so much more interesting in history than, than just, you know, what one king had to say. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here again, George, um, and I'm not going to let you out of this one. So we got Tertullian's camp and we got Basil's camp. Where, are you, where, do, you, where do you fall? Oh, um, yeah, no, I, I think- um, Especially as a father who has kids and you're well, let, I'm, I'm glad you said guiding so, them in what text they're going to read. So I grew up, I grew up as a Pentecostal mm-hmm. um, in the Deep South. My grandfather was um, a Pentecostal preacher. He started a church um, and um, the, the Pentecostal revival had come to the mountain in- um, in Maryland mm-hmm. and just turned the whole place upside down. All mm-hmm. of these, um, these, uh, United brethren and uh, folks that didn't know what hit them. Um, and from that, that, that very, uh, uh, um, very powerful experience, my grandfather decided to come and start a church during the depression. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my grandmother later, later confessed that if, if they'd had the money to put gas in the car, they would have gone back to Maryland at one point because <laughs> it was so hard and so bad, but it, it was that, 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 idea that Flannery O'Connor speaks of, um, the Christ haunted South. I mean, it was very stark. I mean, mm. we, we expected the imminent return of Christ and, you know, so a kind of disengagement from the world, mm-hmm. worldly learning, all of that. You, the, the main thing was just to stay ready for the return of Christ. Right. Read your Bible, go to church, try to stay unstained by the world and just keep your head down and yeah. go forward because, um, in a weird way, it was a kind of sacramental vision and that the, the world was shot through with spiritual realities. Mm. Um, but it, it wasn't a liberating vision in, in, in the sense that maybe the, the great tradition thinks of. That leads to the question of, of learning. So I remember, I remember one, one day in school, um, there, was this, uh, there had been some story in the newspaper that pointed toward some sort of eschatological event and the preacher had built his sermon around it. And I, I had friends who were, had decided they were going to drop out of high school. 
mm. because because the end of the world was coming. And so um, that was about as far as you could get from an embrace of pagan philosophy yeah. and the learning of the world. It was it was profoundly anti-intellectual, mainly because it had been overwhelmed and drowned by this eschatological vision, right. in particular. So I was reminded of this recently. My daughter, who's at Magdalen College studying philosophy, innocently told my mother that she was studying philosophy. Mm. Well, her response was a Tertullian response. Sure. It's like, why are you studying philosophy? You got to be careful. And to be clear, we didn't talk about this in the last episode. Tertullian uh, became a Montanist, which has this sort of rigorous uh, ascetic uh, tinge to it. They were sort of what we would call charismatic, speaking in tongues. Interesting. Uh, and they thought the imminent return was coming. Uh, so uh, I, That's I, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure the Pentecostals weren't reading Tertullian, but but these things can't be coincidental. No, right? there's, no. There's a... Yeah, no, and so so my, my daughter was was a bit taken aback, but, yeah. you know, because for her having grown up Catholic, um, I mean, for her philosophy is the best preparation for theology. Right. Philosophy is fides ratio. Yeah. It's it's a it's a a, um, a sapiental quest to understand the reality that God made, in all its dimensions. So um, I confess, I I as a as a convert, I'm been deeply influenced by John Paul II and Benedict XVI sure. and Joseph Pieper and Newman. Um, so I, I confess it's, I have, I may, may have begun with Tertullian. Yeah. Um, and I can appreciate that laser-like focus on attending to one's soul and being prepared for the, for the last things. Um, but I find that unsustainable mm. as a human person. It's unsustainable over decades of life. Right. Um, and, um, if you're going to do that, you have to go to the desert. You yes. have to follow Anthony to the desert and you have to live in a community of people who are devoted to that. Um, I think to live in a contemporary setting, it's it's going to be more the, um, it's going to be more like St. Basil. I almost said Basilian, which would bring us back to right. St. Thomas. Right. right. So I think that's um, that's the I think that's that's the idea. So an integrated mm -hmm. vision. And I, I, that's certainly that's certainly kind of where we are. And that's so in a way, becoming Catholic not only transformed in my spiritual life, it, it, it transformed every dimension. My intellectual life, everything. But I, I grew up in a setting for the first 18 years. Yeah. It was kind of, Tertullian would have been the reigning sure. spirit. Did I evade that or did I answer that? I'll give you a B plus. <laughs> oh, wow. No, no, no. That, 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 mean, that means a great deal. So is there anything else? We've got about another minute or two. Is yeah. there anything else from your course that you teach on, um, that you would, you would want our listeners to kind of think about in terms of liberal education and a Catholic vision? Well, the, the, I guess the main theme or question that guides that course is what is the telos of education? What is the goal in the end, right? That guides so much. In, the, in that course, we don't talk about content until literally the last week, right? What should you assign your students? Interesting. Right? Yeah. I think a lot of people would, would want that to be week one, but I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the last thing you talk about. There's so much we have to get to before that, right? And and this this unit that we've just been sort of talking about is kind of towards the end as well, but what is the, what is the goal? What is the objective? Is it to get you a job? Is it to get you to get promotions and make money and move up, or is it something fundamentally different? Is it as Hugh of Saint Victor says, reorder your loves again, yeah. getting back to that Augustinian idea of my love is my weight. Love is what takes me in one direction or another. So when you can engage that question, what is the telos, the end, the goal, the objective of education, when you have a clear sense, a clear answer to that, um, that guides so many of these other things, such as can and should you engage with pagan literature? Can you read Harry Potter? Can you listen to Elvis? Uh, and what specifically should you be um, making your students read in the classroom. Yeah. 
I can say something about Elvis, but I won't because I have a very close friend who's an Elvis impersonator. Oh, okay. So I'm going I'm to guard my, guard my words here. Um, and I like him a great deal, so I'm not going to say anything. Um, um, that's, yeah, I think ex you're exactly right. Clarifying the telos and, you know, that, and that's, that's, I think that's one of the most radical things we can do as a Catholic institution. Agreed. Is even to introduce the idea of a telos. Yeah. What do we bring to all of our students in everything we do? The idea that they have a created given nature and from that springs a created a given telos. Right. And we're going to build an institution around that. And that's what USD is about in 2021. Right. How do you build an institution that assumes a given created telos and created nature? What does the university look like if you take that seriously? So, well, this has been very engaging. It's not often that I get interviewed in my podcast. So <laughs> I uh, thank you for turning the table and, um, and I hope we can do this again. Thank you for having okay, me. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.